0: This is The Filter Podcast. I'm Vicki Diaz-Camacho.
1: And I'm Aisha Downton.
0: What you're hearing right now in the background are waves. In order for water to become waves, according to the National Ocean Service, is this. Friction and pressure caused by wind and momentum, which causes water to rise, fall, collide, and splash.
1: Waves are unpredictable, brought on by pressure from within the ocean or the gravitational pull of the sun and moon. Grief and profound feelings of loss are similar. Loss
0: has been palpable this year, whether losing someone because of the virus or losing something like routine, even friendships. And personal story here, when my grandpa died, someone wise once told me, grief isn't linear. It's like waves. Exactly. I feel swells of grief now and again, so that concept of lost time or a person especially these days, really stuck with me.
1: On that note, we wanted to learn what these unspeakable feelings mean, why loss was so different this year, and how to come out on the other side.
0: Today's episode will help us all understand
1: the ebb and flow, and how to ride the wave. And quick message, this one's going to be a little deep. Okay, you ready? Mm -hmm. Let's go. So
0: when we hear the word grief, oftentimes the impulse is to shy away from talking about it. But this has become a prominent feeling for so many of us.
1: Whether losing time with loved ones or routines or the death of a friend or family member, they all have one thing in common, loss. Psychiatrists and trauma experts call this communal grief. So who better to invite on
0: our show? to talk about this process than a grief specialist who works in a hospice center, Oscar Odozko.
2: Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me here today.
0: So can you introduce yourself a little bit and tell our audience who you are and what you do?
2: Sure. I am a grief support specialist with Kansas City Hospice. Um, So I am a social worker by training, and I've been in this role for six months now. And so really getting to see a lot of how the pandemic has affected our grief journey and our ability to grief. Of course. I'd love to
0: tap into the social work aspect of this and what that has done in terms of influencing the way you see things during the pandemic. So can you kind of walk us through that?
2: Sure, absolutely. So with the social work lens, one of our trainings is we call it our systems theory, which is when you're looking at an individual, there's oftentimes systems attached to it. So you think of school setting, you think of work, you think of family, you think of spirituality, routines, you know, things like that, friends, family. So when different systems become affected or they become changed, that affects the person. And so as I'm working with people, and especially in a pandemic, I'm looking at how has their systems changed. For everyone, really, our systems has changed quite a lot in the past two years. And so that that training for me as a social worker has come in handy so well and has really given me the tools to be able to help people and meet them where they're at.
1: And I think that's super interesting because when I first hear social worker, I'm automatically thinking like CPS, kids are in danger, they're taking them away. Oh my goodness. So could you speak a little bit about the misconception of social work and how how that has really helped and come forth Within the pandemic?
2: Absolutely. And I mean, I have to be honest, when I was a student and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and I heard social work, I thought, you know, I don't want to take people's kids away. And so my knowledge of what social work was was also not correct. And so with social work, there are so many options one can do they can work in the school setting, they can work in hospitals, they can work in hospice, they can work in the military, insurance companies, I mean, you name it, and social workers oftentimes are there with our training to help identify resources, barriers to resources, and just what is preventing people from thriving in their lives. And so when I learned about that, I said, wow, there's so many options of what we can do as a social worker. In my journey, I think is an example of that. I'm starting in mental health in a community mental health center, working then at a hospital at Children's Mercy, and now working at Kansas City Hospice. And thankfully, now I was able to find what I am passionate about, and that is loss and grief.
0: Yes. And I, th- I think it probably stems from something quite personal, right? Growing up, what was your story? I mean, and how did you perceive mental health and loss and grief?
2: I have no problem self-disclosing because I think it's so important for people to understand and relate. I'm a first-generation college student from my large family, uh, Latino family. I was the first to go to college and get my bachelor's degree. And obviously having my own losses in my family with COVID, that has only elevated that Passion for me to want to work in this field. That ability to, again, know what you're passionate about, knowing how to take care of yourself, um, have these conversations. It helps when life gets bumpy to know that we're going to get back up. I had very severe depression and anxiety as a child. And my parents, they didn't know what to do, right? They had no education of what mental health was. But my mom really said, I know my son is suffering and that's enough for me to know that i need to do something and that's when she introduced me to wyandotte center paces which is a community mental health center in wyandotte and through there i began therapy and medication services and i know there's a lot of stigma around medication like I don't want to be addicted. I don't want to stay on this for the rest of my life. With my therapist, that's the real change that happened to me. You know, I can't tell you what she said or what she did, but I can remind what she made me feel. She made me feel safe. She made my feelings feel validated and she didn't try and change me. And I said, I want to do this. I want to help people.
1: So thinking back when the pandemic first kicked off, How did your work change?
2: Right, so as obviously we can remember when the pandemic started, that that lockdown came when everyone had to stay at home. Yeah. And now we had to go a completely different route and go virtual. And there was a lot of concern of how are people gonna take this? It's not the same, we know that. We know it's not the same as in person. But what we found, and it was a little bit surprising, was that when that pandemic hits, before when we would make our calls, a lot of people wouldn't answer. With the pandemic hit, everyone was picking up the phone. You know, everyone, because why? They wanted connection, especially because a lot of our clients are older adults. And as we know in, in the beginning of the pandemic and still today, that older adults are at high risk. You know, someone said to me once, Working on your grief is almost like a privilege because so many people have so many other things going on in their life that they just don't have time to sit down and talk with a grief counselor about their grief. And that was a big wake-up call to say you're right. You know, people right now have a lot on their plates, you know, and me teaching them breathing skills is not going to be helpful. You know, and me doing this, is uh, these therapeutic techniques that we're used to are just not going to work right now because people have the, their other needs that they need to be met. And so even our work changed a little bit, you know, helping people, of course, with their grief. But also there are some other complications on top of that that we also help with, you know, to to figure out just. And it's a lot about validating, making people know that like, you're not crazy.
0: Yeah. As someone who specializes in grief counseling, How did you yourself grieve? Has this been personal for you? Have you experienced this grief journey?
2: Absolutely. I have had many days where I get home or am home and I have a meltdown. I cry or I get really angry and I yell at my pillow or I start punching at my pillows. And so for my grief, when I feel any of that, I tell people as professionals, just because we have letters after our name doesn't mean that uh, grief passes over us. It doesn't mean we're excluded from everyday life. We are aware right and maybe that can help us in taking care of ourselves better but the fact is that we're still human and that we're affected so self-disclosure i lost my grandfather in february of this year and that was extremely difficult for us and our family because i would say for me that was one of the most significant losses i've had in in my life and it hasn't even been a year right? And I am working with individuals who have lost their grandfathers, their grandmothers, you know, just a wide range of people. And so sometimes I do feel, you know, my emotions as well. And usually they never show up during session. But afterwards, if I feel my grief, I allow time for my grief. I don't run away from it. I don't try to push it aside because I know that this is gonna be with me for the rest of my life. And so it's time for me to build a relationship with my grief. It doesn't mean I have to like it. It doesn't mean I have to say I'm okay with it, but it's to say, here's this unwelcome guest in my home. I don't want you here, but you're here.
1: As you were talking, it made me think about just this last year and a half not only did we lose people, but we lost things and time and our normal routine. And so it makes me think that when this pandemic comes to some sort of conclusion, we're not only going to be grieving people, but also the time or the other things that we have lost. That is
2: such a great point Ayesha. And thank you so much for bringing it up of that. Okay, when we think about grief, right? When someone says, I have experienced loss, what do you think of people? right? It's some person. Well, who, who died? Well, it's like, actually, I meant that I just, I lost my job. I lost my career of X amount of years. That is who I was. That was my identity. And I lost that. That is grief. Significant grief. Children lost their ability to go to school and be with their friends, to be in sports. Um, Students who were graduating were not able to graduate. Rituals, that things that they're not going to get back so you think of the loss of a person but then you don't think about the secondary losses that comes to so sure let's say someone lost their husband so they say oh well you know she lost her husband how sad now she has to put on a role different role now she's no longer just she's a wife now she's a widow so it's not just i lost one person that's it it is the significant amount of degrees of loss that come And slowly but surely, we find that room of acceptance, and slowly that denial moves out the way. And I think people give denial a bad rep, but I think that's our protective factors that protect us from the reality of what's going on. Not that that we're going to avoid the reality, but again, our body is saying, you can handle that truth all at once. That's too much for you to accept. So I'm going to show you bits and pieces of it.
0: Then how do you talk to your friends and family and other folks about processing these difficult moments? Let's get some tips for our folks.
2: You know, I think the number one thing for me is that I've accepted or I have realized that I needed to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. I mean, we just said it. We know change is hard within ourselves. We know how hard it is to change our habits. So I don't tell people what to do. I don't like that approach because I don't like people telling me what to do. So I thought I don't wanna do that to other people. Instead, what I do is help others see different perspectives that perhaps they didn't realize were there. And then give that person the option to say, you can now choose to continue to proceed with your life the way you were going. And you know yourself better than anyone where that's going to lead. Or you have these other options now too. So when I'm talking with friends or with family and they're talking about a difficult situation or a grief or emotions that's difficult, one one thing I, I always ask myself is, why are you talking? Why are you speaking? Are you, are you going to say something because, you know, you care and it's trying to be helpful? Or are you just saying something to prove a point or to try to be right or to try and, you know, all these things that are not going to be beneficial for this person? And people can pick up on that very quickly to say, Does this person actually want to help me? Or is this just person pointing out something wrong with me that I need to change? But to say, hey, I don't know how to be helpful. I'm actually really uncomfortable right now, but I care about you more than that. And I'm willing to put myself in this uncomfortable situation, if that means I can help you.
1: Before we move on to our next guest, Let's take a pause to break down what actually happens in the brain when we're actively grieving. Neuroscientist Dr. Zoe Donaldson puts it like this. Somewhat surprisingly, what I learned is that we know far less about grief than we do about other complex emotions like fear. But we do know a few things.
0: She also said society's way of consoling one another can be sometimes out of touch. She explains.
1: So one of the things that we know is despite the fact that we say things like time heals all wounds, because what your brain has to do is it has to take all of the moments of joy from that relationship. Now, Vicki, I know your grandfather passed away recently. I'm curious, what were some of the things you were hearing from people at that time? Honestly, it was
0: silence at first. Um, people didn't know what to say. There was this sense of fear of saying the wrong thing. And then some folks would just say, I'm sorry for your loss, which felt very generic and not very helpful. So I was feeling super isolated in that moment. But as I continually felt his loss, I kind of reckoned with the idea that I could keep his memory and his life alive through things so I have his banjolin at home and that constantly reminds me of his love of music and then you know I just listened to all of his songs his favorite musicians and started collecting records so for me that was an active way to keep his memory alive and his presence kind of like a, a hug <laughs> in my world
1: Interestingly enough, according to a research paper published in Current Opinion in Psychology, grieving can also be a form of learning. Which our next guest, Grace, can help us understand how
0: grief can also be a pathway to resilience. Welcome. Thank you. I love
3: that. Yes. So can you tell us uh, in a nutshell, what do you do? So I help successful professionals to start successful coaching businesses. And so um, really what I help them to do is overcome whatever obstacles they have so that they can get to the success that they desire.
0: Yeah and And your background is in nursing
3: and as a trauma recovery coach, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. my background is in um, as a nurse practitioner actually, and um, and as well, trauma recovery. What does that look like? Hmm. Trauma recovery? Really, what trauma recovery looks like is understanding how your trauma affects your decisions and your actions today, taking ownership for that, allowing that to sit in. But then deciding what you want to do with that now. And then when you decide what you want to do with that now, then you can take that experience, pull from it what you want and redirect it in the way that you want it to go so that you can have whatever you want. And that's what full recovery looks like.
1: And how do you think the pandemic is going to change what you do because people are grieving. People, jobs, opportunities, they're grieving a lot of things from 2020 up until now. So how do you think that that will change the work that you do?
3: I think it's gonna be important that we have conversations that acknowledge that this is something that deserves to be grieved. Mm. We have two two options here, which is where we can pretend like nothing happened Everybody starts showing back up at work. Everybody start going on as if now life is back and we can not acknowledge what it did and how it's sitting in our spirit. Um, I know for me, when I very first came back into the workspace, I felt almost, I felt anxiety. Mm-hmm. I felt anxiety about the number of people that were in the room. I felt anxiety about the thoughts of having to get dressed again and all of these things. And because I knew what that was, that was how the trauma was showing up. I allowed myself to feel. I sat down and I allowed myself to say, this is scary. Yeah, You know what I'm mean? like? I'm in a room with only three people, but it's still a little bit scary. And so if we don't give people the tools, the resources and permission to say that, it's gonna have consequences later on. We're gonna see more depression later on. We're gonna see more anxiety later on. We're gonna see more broken families later on. So we really have to do a a really due diligence to say, these are some of the things that you may be experiencing that you don't recognize is connected to the trauma, but it really is connected to the trauma, and here's how you can manage that and overcome it
0: it almost sounds as though you're saying grief can also be active in that you're acknowledging that moment and
3: working through it yes absolutely that's the beautiful piece is when you can feel safe to say, this is what I'm feeling. I'm gonna allow myself to feel because I trust myself enough that I can pick myself back up and then move forward in it. And you really need both pieces of that so that you don't get stuck. And so, um, you know, my, a little bit of my story is, um, I experienced losing my dad my grandmother And then my sister and my brother, six months apart. And then my mother and my son. And so I found myself in support groups, grief support groups, of course. And um, I went there because I was looking for support and I was looking for hope. But when I got there, it was dark and it was heavy. And I found that I thought I was going there to get hope from them, but I found that I needed to be the light in that space. Um, because what I felt was palpable grief. You felt it in the room, which you expected. But the ironic part was a lot of these people had suffered the loss 5, 10, even 15 years ago, yet the grief was as palpable as it was for me, That and it just happened. And so I, I realized at that moment that I didn't want that to be my life. I didn't want five years later to still feel the pain as raw as I was feeling in that way. And so I knew that I wanted to learn, how do I acknowledge that these terrible things have happened in my life, things that are so much more than what any one person should have to endure, but not stay stuck there either. Because there had to be something greater on the other side, and so that's how I, transition into trauma recovery, because I realized that there was a lot of people who were still feeling the same pain that they felt on the funeral 15 years later, and they'd stop living. And I was like, that will not be me. I will not stop living for more reasons, but for one, because if I stop living, then my dad, my mother, my son, they stop living. So how does one get or arrive to joy when grief is on the passenger side? Mm. you recognize that they can both be in the car. Mm. And so what I find is that the most challenging thing in the beginning of grief is you feel like you have to choose sadness or joy, sadness or joy. And the reality is the goal is, especially in the beginning of grief, like I just want joy to come and sit in the car sometime with me, Mm you know, like I'm gonna be sad My 23 year old son was Mm. murdered while dancing at a party. I'm going to be sad, but joy, will you come and visit me? Because I'm tired of being sad all day. I'm tired of crying all day. So making room for joy, saying, giving yourself permission to say, I can honor my loss and still live. And I think that's the big piece is finding that voice inside yourself that says, I can still feel sad and find a way to find some joy too. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Yes,
1: yes, that
0: is so important because those, we often think of them as competing emotions and it's not necessarily the case.
3: We've been taught that high and low, good and bad. So it's always this thing of choosing. And I say choose both because that's the reality. Reframing the way that grief has to look is important. And so saying, I can cry and I can laugh, I can be happy and I can be sad. And in those moments that um, you're feeling sad, learning how to shift the emotion because you've made a decision that you want Mm -hmm. both. So does
1: time really heal all wounds or do you find that to
3: be a myth? I think time changes the way you feel about the wound. It's always there in terms of is there ever a day that the wound of wishing that my mom was still here, that that ever goes away? No, it never goes away. You always do. But over time, learning how to embrace the discomfort the sadness that changes over time and you know and you and whereas i can remember my son was the last death and so when i lost him it would sometimes be a episode of four or five hours of just crying i mean just stuck in pain and not being able to move through that so with time that and i went to therapy and my therapist said Five hours is what you need right now. I said, how long is this gonna take that I gotta take five hours? I don't wanna cry for five hours. Um, And she said, give it time. And it was amazing that over time it was four hours and then it was three hours and then it was two hours and then it was an hour and now it comes and goes and it ebbs and it flows and um, like a wave. And so I think that's the part that they're talking about that time will heal the wound That's what I think that that is more, is what it looks like, that's more realistic. I think if you are five, 10 years out, and I know they say there's no, we can never put a time on grief. I think that has to be really, evaluated because we also don't want to never start reliving and sometimes that phrase everybody has their time to grieve allows people to stay stuck too and so we have to kind of balance those things about speaking that to someone you are allowed you know the time to grieve and so do we want to say never progress i think we have to really kind of think about how we reshape that and reframe that
0: What methods or tips would you want to share with folks about finding joy and resilience uh, despite everything that's happened?
3: The first thing and the most important thing is that you make a decision for what you want. I remember after I lost my son, I said to God, I've been, because you got to remember, I've had all this loss now. And so I'd been walking with a smile, but under a cloud. And I was like, God, I just want to be happy. Like, I'm ready, I'm ready. Like, regardless of what has happened in my mind, help teach me how to be happy during the storm, whatever storm is now or whatever storm is to come. And so making up that decision that that this is what you want for yourself. That, I mean, you'd be amazed at just literally just saying that out of your mouth. Every day I say, today is going to be a great day. Grace is amazing. You see, I've tattooed affirmations um, and people, you know, go back and forth and say whether or not affirmations work or they don't work, but I truly believe that they do because what you speak out of your mouth is a seed that you're planting. But then you have to go and you have to water that seed. And so, and then the other thing is, you know, for, the other biggest thing for me was my brother, my mother, and my son, those three, that really reshaped me. And I thought back to what were the conversations that we I had with them, you know, at the end, you know, that, that I, what, what was it, there had to be purpose in it. And the biggest thing was to, live in purpose and people talk about purpose and you know they make it this complicated thing but for me it was learning to live in doing what I love and that meant leaving a job as a nurse practitioner because for me that was what made sense for me but it wasn't what filled my soul and so I think that's important that you find what feeds your soul and do it and do it and do it all the time
0: that was a lot it was it was quite emotional yes it was but then
1: also really uplifting yeah right um i love the way that grace talked about joy and you know how joy is a passenger side to grief right they can both exist in the same space they can both exist (laughs) and that
0: is true because you do feel them all at once and that's what's so confusing i think for people Mm -hmm. yeah for sure I think as I, it's been a few years since my grandpa died, but, you know, when you feel those profound, deep sense of loss and you are looking at the seat that they used to sit in, or you see a jacket that they used to wear all the time and you smell that, you know, you you really start to sense this loss that you can't wrap your mind around, but it's not always a devastating or sad thing because you think about them wearing that jacket out to their favorite restaurant. Or, you know, you think of them in that seat and what they would, you know, the, the, the shows that they would watch. Um, and for me, that's been kind of my sense of, of peace. The one thing that we have found through all of the lessons that we've delved into this season is that there is hope at, at the end of all of this, right? There's resilience that we can find, whether it's with community, whether it's doing things that we love,
1: yeah, it kind of makes it to where that person is still living and you're not, you know, thinking of them in death. You're thinking of them in life and the legacy that they left behind. So stay positive and try to stay as strong as you can out there. But also remember, you don't have to be strong all the time. It's OK to acknowledge the trauma that we all <laughs> have been through in mourning 2020.
0: And 2021 has <laughs> kind of been... A weird little shadow season i guess it's time to wrap the season up
1: <laughs> no but we appreciate you all for sticking with us through this second season and we'll catch you all on the other side peace the filter podcast is a production of flatland at kansas city pbs This episode was written and produced by Aisha Downton, Vicky Diaz-Camacho, and Nina Rao. Music by First Comm. Production support by Felicia Diaz, Ana Parra,
0: and PJ Kelly
1: at The Post House. Original music by Asia Berlin and Primary Color Music. Additional thanks to our Communications and Engagement Manager, Tyler Peterson.